Section 41 of Volume 1b of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1b, Section 41, Chapter 19, Part 2. The successes which the arms of England have in different ages obtained over those of France have been much owing to the favourable situation of the former kingdom. The English, happily seated in an island, could take advantage of every misfortune which attended their neighbours, and were little exposed to the danger of reprisals. They never left their own country but when they were conducted by a king of extraordinary genius, or found their enemy divided by intestine factions, or were supported by a powerful alliance on the continent, and as all those circumstances concurred at present to favour their enterprise, they had reason to expect from it proportionable success. The Duke of Burgundy, expelled France by a combination of the princes, had been secretly soliciting the alliance of England, and Henry knew that this prince, though he scrupled at first to join the inveterate enemy of his country, would willingly, if he saw any probability of success, both assist him with his Flemish subjects, and draw over to the same side all his numerous partisans in France. Trusting therefore to this circumstance, but without establishing any concert with the duke, he put to sea, and landed near Harfleur, at the head of an army of six thousand men-at-arms, and twenty-four thousand foot, mostly archers. He immediately began the siege of that place, which was valiantly defended by de Stoutville, and under him de Goitry, de Gaucourt, and others of the French nobility. But as the garrison was weak, and the fortifications in bad repair, the governor was at last obliged to capitulate, and he promised to surrender the place if he received no succour before the 18th of September. The day came, and there was no appearance of a French army to relieve him. Henry, taking possession of the town, placed a garrison in it, and expelled all French inhabitants, with an intention of peopling it anew with English. The fatigues of this siege and the unusual heat of the season, had so wasted the English army that Henry could enter on no further enterprise, and was obliged to think of returning to England. He had dismissed his transports, which could not anchor in an open road upon the enemy's coasts, and he lay under a necessity of marching by land to Calais before he could reach a place of safety. A numerous French army of 14,000 men at arms and 40,000 foot was by this time assembled in Normandy under the constable d'Albret, a force which, if prudently conducted, was sufficient either to trample down the English in the open field, or to harass and reduce to nothing their small army, before they could finish so long and difficult a march. Henry, therefore, cautiously offered to sacrifice his conquest of Harfleur for a safe passage to Calais. But his proposal being rejected, 
he determined to make his way by valor and conduct through all the opposition of the enemy that he might not discourage his army by the appearance of flight or expose them to those hazards which naturally attend precipitate marches he made slow and deliberate journeys till he reached the somme which he purposed to pass at the ford of blanquetague the same place where edward in a like situation had before escaped from philip de valois but he found the ford rendered impassable by the precaution of the french general and guarded by a strong body on the opposite bank and he was obliged to march higher up the river in order to seek for a safe passage he was continually harassed on his march by flying parties of the enemy saw bodies of troops on the other side ready to oppose every attempt his provisions were cut off his soldiers languished with sickness and fatigue and his affairs seemed to be reduced to a desperate situation when he was so dexterous or so fortunate as to seize by surprise a passage near st quintin which had not been sufficiently guarded and he safely carried over his army henry then bent his march northward to calais but he was still exposed to great and imminent danger from the enemy who had also passed the somme and threw themselves full in his way with the purpose of intercepting his retreat after he had passed the small river at tournois at blangy he was surprised to observe from the heights the whole french army drawn up in the plains of azincourt and so posted that it was impossible for him to proceed on his march without coming to an engagement nothing in appearance could be more unequal than the battle upon which his safety and all his fortunes now depended the english army was little more than half the number which had disembarked at harfleur and they labored under every discouragement and necessity the enemy was four times more numerous was headed by the dauphin and all the princes of the blood and was plentifully supplied with provisions of every kind henry's situation was exactly similar to that of edward at crecy and that of the black prince at poitiers and the memory of these great events inspiring the english with courage made them hope for a like deliverance from their present difficulties the king likewise observed the same prudent conduct which had been followed by these great commanders he drew up his army on a narrow ground between two woods which guarded each flank and he patiently expected in that posture the attack of the enemy had the french constable been able either to reason justly upon the present circumstances of the two armies or to profit by past experience he had declined a combat and had waited till necessity obliging the english to advance had made them relinquish the advantages of their situation but the impetuous valor of the nobility and a vain confidence in superior numbers brought on this fatal action which proved the source of infinite calamities to their country the french archers on horseback and their men at arms crowded in their ranks advanced upon the english archers who had fixed palisados in their front to break the impression of the enemy
and who safely plied them from behind that defence with a shower of arrows which nothing could resist the clay soil moistened by some rain which had lately fallen proved another obstacle to the force of the french cavalry the wounded men and horses discomposed their ranks the narrow compass in which they were pent hindered them from recovering any order the whole army was a scene of confusion terror and dismay and henry perceiving his advantage ordered the english archers who were light and unencumbered to advance upon the enemy and seize the moment of victory they fell with their battle-axes upon the french who in their present posture were incapable either of flying or making defence they hewed them in pieces without resistance and being seconded by the men-at-arms who also pushed on against the enemy they covered the field with the killed wounded dismounted and overthrown after all appearance of opposition was over the english had leisure to make prisoners and having advanced with uninterrupted success to the open plain they there saw the remains of the french rear-guard which still maintained the appearance of a line of battle at the same time they heard an alarm from behind some gentlemen of picardy having collected about six hundred peasants had fallen upon the english baggage and were doing execution on the unarmed followers of the camp who fled before them henry seeing the enemy on all sides of him began to entertain apprehensions from his prisoners and he thought it necessary to issue general orders for putting them to death but on discovering the truth he stopped the slaughter and was still able to save a great number no battle was ever more fatal to france by the number of princes and nobility slain or taken prisoners among the former were the constable himself the count of nevers and the duke of brabant brothers to the duke of burgundy the count of vaudemont brother to the duke of lorraine the duke of alençon the duke of bar the count of marle the most eminent prisoners were the duke of orleans and bourbon the counts d'eu vendome and richemont and the marshal of boucicaut an archbishop of sens also was slain in this battle the killed are computed on the whole to have amounted to ten thousand men and as the slaughter fell chiefly upon the cavalry it is pretended that of these eight thousand were gentlemen henry was master of fourteen thousand prisoners the person of chief note who fell among the english was the duke of york who perished fighting by the king's side and had an end more honourable than his life he was succeeded in his honours and fortune by his nephew son of the earl of cambridge executed in the beginning of the year all the english who were slain exceeded not forty though some writers with greater probability make the number more considerable the three great battles of crecy poitiers and azincourt bear a singular resemblance to each other in their most considerable circumstances in all of them there appears the same temerity in the english princes who without any object of moment merely for the sake of plunder 
had ventured so far into the enemy's country as to leave themselves no retreat and unless saved by the utmost imprudence in the french commanders were from their very situation exposed to inevitable destruction but allowance being made for this temerity which according to the irregular plans of war followed in those ages seems to have been in some measure unavoidable there appears in the day of action the same presence of mind dexterity courage firmness and precaution on the part of the english the same precipitation confusion and vain confidence on the part of the french and the events were such as might have been expected from such opposite conduct the immediate consequences too of these three great victories were similar instead of pushing the french with vigour and taking advantage of their consternation the english princes after their victory seem rather to have relaxed their efforts and to have allowed the enemy leisure to recover from his losses henry interrupted not his march a moment after the battle of azincourt he carried his prisoners to calais thence to england he even concluded a truce with the enemy and it was not until after an interval of two years that any body of english troops appeared in france the poverty of all the european princes and the small resources of their kingdoms were the cause of these continual interruptions in their hostilities and though the maxims of war were in general destructive their military operations were mere incursions which without any settled plan they carried on against each other the lustre however attending the victory of azincourt procured some supplies from the english parliament though still unequal to the expenses of a campaign they granted henry an entire fifteenth of movables and they conferred on him for life the duties of tonnage and poundage and the subsidies on the exportation of wool and leather this concession is more considerable than that which had been granted to richard the second by his last parliament and which was afterwards on his deposition made so great an article of charge against him but during this interruption of hostilities from england france was exposed to all the furies of civil war and the several parties became every day more enraged against each other the duke of burgundy confident that the french ministers and generals were entirely discredited by the misfortune as in Cour, advanced with a great army to paris and attempted to reinstate himself in possession of the government as well as of the person of the king but his partisans in that city were overawed by the court and kept in subjection the duke despaired of success and he retired with his forces which he immediately disbanded in the low countries he was soon after invited to make a new attempt by some violent quarrels which broke out in the royal family the queen isabella daughter of the duke of bavaria who had been hitherto an inveterate enemy to the burgundian faction had received a great injury from the other party which the implacable spirit of that princess was never able to forgive the public necessities obliged the count of armagnac 
created constable of France in the place of d'Albret, to seize the great treasures which Isabella had amassed, and when she expressed her displeasure at this injury, he inspired into the weak mind of the king some jealousies concerning her conduct, and pushed him to seize and put to the torture, and afterwards throw into the Seine, Boisberdon, her favourite, whom he accused of a commerce of gallantry with that princess. The queen herself was sent to Tours, and confined under a guard, and after suffering these multiplied insults, she no longer scrupled to enter into a correspondence with the Duke of Burgundy. As her son, the Dauphin Charles, a youth of sixteen, was entirely governed by the faction of Armagnac, she extended her animosity to him, and sought his destruction with the most unrelenting hatred. She had soon an opportunity of rendering her unnatural purpose effectual. The Duke of Burgundy, in concert with her, entered France at the head of a great army. He made himself master of Amiens, Abbeville, Dorlans, Montreuil, and other towns in Picardy, Senlis, Reims, Chalons, Troyes, and Auxerre, declared themselves of his party. He got possession of Beaumont, Pontoise, Vernon, Moulant, Montlhéry, towns in the neighborhood of Paris, and carrying further his progress towards the west, he seized Etampes, Chartres, and other fortresses, and was at last able to deliver the queen who fled to Troyes, and openly declared against those ministers who, she said, detained her husband in captivity. Meanwhile, the partisans of Burgundy raised a commotion in Paris, which always inclined to that faction. Lille Adam, one of the Duke's captains, was received into the city in the night-time, and headed the insurrection of the people, which in a moment became so impetuous that nothing could oppose it. The person of the king was seized, the Dauphin made his escape with difficulty, great numbers of the faction of Armagnac were immediately butchered, the Count himself and many persons of note were thrown into prison, murders were daily committed from private animosity under pretense of faction, and the populace, not satiated with their fury, and deeming the course of public justice too dilatory, broke into the prisons, and put to death the Count of Armagnac, and all the other nobility who were there confined. While France was in such furious combustion, and was so ill prepared to resist a foreign enemy, Henry, having collected some treasure and levied an army, landed in Normandy at the head of twenty-five thousand men, and met with no considerable opposition from any quarter. He made himself master of Falaise, Evreux, and Caen submitted to him. Pont de l'Arche opened its gates, and Henry, having subdued all the lower Normandy, and having received a reinforcement of fifteen thousand men from England, formed the siege of Rouen, which was defended by a garrison of four thousand men, seconded by the inhabitants to the number of fifteen thousand. The Cardinal des Ursons, 
here attempted to incline him towards peace and to moderate his pretensions but the king replied to him in such terms as showed that he was fully sensible of all his present advantages do you not see said he that god has led me hither as by the hand france has no sovereign i have just pretensions to that kingdom everything is here in the utmost confusion no one thinks of resisting me can i have a more sensible proof that the being who disposes of empires has determined to put the crown of france upon my head but though henry had opened his mind to this scheme of ambition he still continued to negotiate with his enemies and endeavoured to obtain more secure though less considerable advantages he made at the same time offers of peace to both parties to the queen and duke of burgundy on the one hand who having possession of the king's person carried the appearance of legal authority and to the dauphin on the other who being the undoubted heir of the monarchy was adhered to by every one that paid any regard to the true interests of their country these two parties also carried on a continual negotiation with each other the terms proposed on all sides were perpetually varying the events of war and the intrigues of the cabinet intermingled with each other and the fate of france remained long in this uncertainty after many negotiations henry offered the queen and the duke of burgundy to make peace with them to espouse the princess catherine and to accept of all the provinces ceded to edward the third by the treaty of bretigny with the addition of normandy which he was to receive in full and entire sovereignty these terms were submitted to there remained only some circumstances to adjust in order to the entire completion of the treaty but in this interval the duke of burgundy secretly finished his treaty with the dauphin and these two princes agreed to share the royal authority during king charles's lifetime and to unite their arms in order to expel foreign enemies this alliance which seemed to cut off from henry all hopes of further success proved in the issue the most favourable event that could have happened for his pretensions whether the dauphin and the duke of burgundy were ever sincere in their mutual engagements is uncertain but very fatal effects resulted from their momentary and seeming union the two princes agreed to an interview in order to concert the means of rendering effectual their common attack on the english but how both or either of them could with safety venture upon this conference it seemed somewhat difficult to contrive the assassination perpetrated by the duke of burgundy and still more his open avowal of the deed and defence of the doctrine tended to dissolve all the bands of civil society and even men of honour who had detested the example might deem it just on a favourable opportunity to retaliate upon the author the duke therefore who neither dared to give nor could pretend to expect any trust 
agreed to all the contrivances for mutual security which were proposed by the ministers of the dauphin the two princes came to montereau the duke lodged in the castle the dauphin in the town which was divided from the castle by the river yon the bridge between them was chosen for the place of interview two high rails were drawn across the bridge the gates on each side were guarded one by the officers of the dauphin the other by those of the duke the princes were to enter into the intermediate space by the opposite gates accompanied each by ten persons and with all these marks of diffidence to conciliate their mutual friendship but it appeared that no precautions are sufficient where laws have no place and where all principles of honour are utterly abandoned tanigoy de chatel and others of the dauphin's retainers had been zealous partisans of the late duke of orleans and they determined to seize the opportunity of revenging on the assassin the murder of that prince they no sooner entered the rails than they drew their swords and attacked the duke of burgundy his friends were astonished and thought not of making any defence and all of them either shared his fate or were taken prisoners by the retinue of the dauphin the extreme youth of this prince made it doubtful whether he had been admitted into the secret of the conspiracy but as the deed was committed under his eye by his most intimate friends who still retained their connections with him the blame of the action which was certainly more imprudent than criminal fell entirely upon him the whole state of affairs was everywhere changed by this unexpected incident the city of paris passionately devoted to the family of burgundy broke out into the highest fury against the dauphin the court of king charles entered from interest into the same views and as all the ministers of that monarch had owed their preferment to the late duke and foresaw their downfall if the dauphin should recover possession of his father's person they were concerned to prevent by any means the success of his enterprise the queen persevering in her unnatural animosity against her son increased the general flame and inspired into the king as far as he was susceptible of any sentiment the same prejudices by which she herself had long been actuated but above all philip count of charlois now duke of burgundy thought himself bound by every tie of honour and duty to revenge the murder of his father and to prosecute the assassin to the utmost extremity and in this general transport of rage every consideration of national and family interest was buried in oblivion by all parties the subjection to a foreign enemy the expulsion of the lawful heir the slavery of the kingdom appeared but small evils if they led to the gratification of the present passion end of section forty one chapter nineteen part two